0: Welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and today our guest is Dr. Lorimer Mosley, joining us from Australia. He is a leading clinical neuroscientist, pain educator, and clinician. Welcome. Thank you, Tom. Lormer, welcome to the show. Um, I'd like to do Lormer, who I'm going to know um, pretty well, That's as well as I'd like. He's a busy guy, and so am I. But he's a remarkable person in that he's, you he started on physical therapy, right, Lormer?
1: Yeah.
0: And yeah. so he has that background. And he's also become a clinical neuroscientist, pain educator, and clinician. He's written over 350 research articles and five books on pain science and management. He goes all over the world teaching people about chronic pain. And he has won the IASPs in, in Inaugural Clinical Science Prize and Australia's most prestigious prize for innovation in health medical research. He's currently the Director of Impact and Health at the University of South Australia, Fellow of the Australian Academy of Health and Medical Science, Honorary Fellow of the Australian Faculty of Pain Management, and an NHMRC leadership investigator. So, Laura, welcome to the show. And that doesn't begin to tell you the... Um, Stats of lormer mosley but it's actually one thing before i let you talk <laughs> remember i told you i like to talk <laughs> so Lorm, lormer so lormer inspired me to take a stand-up comedy class because my family has told me unequivocally that i am not funny and lormer mosley is funny so i've now taken two stages of a stand-up comedy class and i'm still not funny so lormer not only is he a great educator he's incredibly entertaining he came to seattle Couple of years ago, and put on a, a show for us. It was a very educational show, but extraordinarily entertaining. And so, Larma, you're learning your sense of humor. Is something that's one of my life goals here. <laughs> so, but I, I have a ways to uh, go. Anyway, so Lorna, welcome to the show.
1: Yeah, thanks, David. I think that it's. Um, uh, I tend to get that a little bit—the whole stand-up thing. I don't. I don't know if that's that's uh, totally complimentary for a scientist to get that. That illusion, but uh, I reckon that people find me funny because they don't expect someone talking about pain and neuroscience to be funny. I think. That's true. I think if uh, if someone turned up paying for a comedy show, they'd be pretty disappointed in terms <laughs> of mine, I think
0: <laughs> that could be true. So the first part of the show, this podcast, I wanted to just alarm. Her. Really, what I think about his work is really interesting because it's extremely practical and. For instance, he talks about how all the senses make a difference as far as the pain perception. He clearly illustrates how pain is really interpreted by your nervous system. And so I'd love to have you just spend a little bit of time, and I will listen for a while. I'll just explain to the world what you want the world to know about chronic pain. How's that for a second question? Yeah, you leave that (laughs)
1: in as though it's going to be a yes-no response. And then here it is. What... uh... Gee whiz! Uh, I think there's so many. Yeah, if I'm going to answer that in a roundabout kind of way because I, I do have a strong conviction that what those of us in the hood, you know, doing the inverted commas you know, in the neighbourhood of of pain science and pain care, and uh, I guess pain education, what what we understand about chronic pain is appears to me to be full of opportunity, full of hope, uh, full of uh, what I would broadly call the good stuff, you know, and a lot of it's very intuitive and very sensible from a, a humanistic perspective, uh, almost like a biological version of, of to love and be loved. Right. Uh, but if we were to if we were to try and... If, if we had the possibility of transferring... The way that the cutting edge understands pain to the general public uh, I, I reckon that would be a mind blowing impact not just in in preventing and uh, treating persistent pain but probably in a more more broad sense i mean the 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 whole idea that yeah and, and as i 'm hearing myself talk, David, and I feel like I need to give the caveat that I don't think I'm the truth sheriff. Right? That you're your what? The truth sheriff. Like I, uh, instead of me uh, qualifying everything I say with, this is my understanding or my belief, which might be wrong. I might just right. say it once now, and then then I can just continue on by saying I reckon and I right. believe. <laughs> um, so I reckon that uh, pain is a feeling. Okay. Uh, that has profound evolutionary advantages for us, that it, it keeps our body safe most of the time. Well, it keeps our body safe. Right. Most of the time, the vast majority of the time, uh, it's, a, it's very helpful for us that we've got you know, the pain system which seems to be an individual, um, excuse me, an individual context-specific. Uh, influenced by genetics, slowly learn over time system, has this protective buffer that nearly always keeps our tissues safe. Right. Uh, and I would love people to, I would love it if the public conceptualised pain in that way uh, as a, a feeling that has a behavioural objective and, and when we're in pain, we, we automatically think, what are the reasons my brain might be trying to change my behaviour here? Right. And I can see that it's not just your brain, like I've been accused of being neurocentric. Um, it just is easier that way. I, I'm, it's probably about as... Uh, yeah, I find it difficult to articulate beyond that simplistic model in a way that I think will land uh, yeah. on I mean, I, I'm So I'm saying so- brain.
0: Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sort of simplistic in my viewpoints. I think, I think one of the experiments which I would love to have you share with the audience is the one where you had a pain probe on the patient's forearm and they were looking at a red light versus a blue light. I mean, yeah, red light versus a blue yeah, light yeah. about all the senses yeah. count. And so it's a total experience and with acute nociceptive pain is designed to keep in a range of behaviors that are safe and then chronic pain, something happens that's different. But that blue light, red light experiment was actually more for acute pain, correct? Just showing how the pain system works. Totally, yeah. Uh, I guess it, rather than
1: showing how the system works, I think it really revealed the uh, oh, the, the incredible sophistication of the system. And I think that gets back to your first question of what would I what would what would I like people to know? I'd like people to understand pain as highly sophisticated system that is so clever that if you put a very cold probe on the hand of healthy people who have volunteered for a pain experiment, I understand they're probably a bit weird because they've volunteered for a pain experiment, but let's say they're reasonably normal people. the, The pain system is so sophisticated that it can pick up that in the vicinity is a red light, which means a lot of things to us
0: right now.
1: It means danger. It means hot. And the brain produces a feeling uh, in the hand, so very anatomically appropriate, beautifully anatomically appropriate. Uh, and that that feeling makes us protect the hand because it hurts, we want to remove ah. the hand and, ah. excuse my dog, there's just been a, it's okay. a ring at the no. doorbell and someone else <laughs> is getting the The challenges of working at home, yeah. Um, so that you know, that experiment of putting a very cold probe on the back of your hand demonstrates how sophisticated the system is. In that, uh, the visual system tells the brain there's this red cue, and that locks into a whole lot of meaning of red, associated with a noxious stimulus, and the brain fundamentally shifts what it produces for you. Okay. Uh, because that's the sensible thing to do. And I think that that experiment, so it hurts a lot more, the very same cold probe hurts a lot more if you associate it with a red light than if you associate it with a blue light. And when I say a lot, it's a lot more for a neuroscientist like me. Um, I think, I can't remember the effect size, but I'd be guessing it's at least, you know, it's two points on a 10 point scale.
0: Okay, well, that's for some
1: individuals, it was six points wow. on a 10 point scale. And for some individuals, it was nothing. And in in scientific terms, we call those individuals complete idiots <laughs> <laughs> because their brains are not picking up on these sensible right. cues.
0: Right. So I'd
1: love people to understand pain really as a, something that's produced, and you know, we make pain, we don't perceive it as, as somewhere else, right? It's not happening somewhere else. We make it.
0: Well, that's a part that you're saying. When so we have it. when we, yeah, you're so clear about this, I mean, You're, I mean, you're talking about the the spider bite and I would strongly recommend looking at his talk on the um, TED talk, the Adelaide TED talk, but basically pain is produced only in the brain. If you didn't have a nervous system, you would not sense pain and you're very clear about that. And so with the red light, blue light, if I, can I respond to
1: that? Because I
0: think, um,
1: the, the, it's the most, the in, in posh, scientifically defendable terms, the most proximal organ is is the brain, right? It's a bit like the last one to touch it. Right. Is the brain. But it's the human that okay. makes pain and uh experiences it. But I totally agree and I I don't think you'd find anyone who would disagree with the proposal that you can't have pain without a nervous system. I mean you can't have a lot of stuff without a nervous system, obviously you can't have life without a nervous system, but right. uh, no brain, no pain. Right. And we certainly can't say the same for body parts.
0: Right. Well, no mean, knee to... you
1: can still have knee
0: pain. So when you're educating patients, by the way, um, I just want to stop for a second. So LARMA, through funding with the Australian government, put together a uh, video called Tame the Beast. You can find it on tamethebeast.org. It's one word. And it's a five-minute video just looking over at the nature of chronic pain. So with acute pain, if you have a red light, why you're more sensitized to pain than if you're looking at a blue light, But chronic pain, something changes dramatically, right? There's an acute pain and chronic pain is quite dramatic. How would you characterize that basic shift into chronic pain?
1: Yeah, so uh, you're right to iterate that, that that those experiments uh, show very clearly that in an acute pain situation, the brain produces more pain and more readily if you've got other cues in your space telling you this is a more important thing from which to protect yourself. Right. Uh, That principle, I believe, applies across the board with pain, no matter if it's acute, chronic, whatever. Any cue the brain is able to use. If I was to summarise the functional difference between acute and persistent or chronic pain, uh, I would probably just summarise it as... The protective buffer offered by pain just gets really big, just just expands, so that you end up being uh, having a feeling. So you end up as an organism, you end up producing a feeling that urges you to escape and to protect. Right. When that's not in your best interests. Okay. So the system develops an error. The system starts to protect you from the very things you need to do to be healthy and well and and wealthy and wise, uh, but also from the very things that, that that actual tissue needs to become more healthy and stronger. So it's, a, it's really a horrible situation in many ways because you are the system that's making the pain and you are the human that's wanting to avoid the pain because, of course, you would want to right Uh, and as long as you think as long as you remain in that state of believing that pain is providing an accurate marker of just the tissues there's nothing else as long as you and you are thinking okay this is a marker of the health of my tissues right then you don't want to put load through the tissues right which feeds into the cycle and then we're in a vicious cycle from which it is very difficult to escape
0: so you start protecting, and as you protect more, your tissues are stressed less and become less and less healthy, correct? Yeah. Okay. So you do a lot of pain education around the world. You've written, could you just mention a couple of the books that you've written on chronic pain?
1: I've, well, I've, I've written a storybook okay. called Painful Yarns, okay. which is more actually about uh, an entertaining life that I had before I became a pain scientist.
0: Okay um
1: but all of the stories in that uh, are used as metaphors to understand what we would call we'd now call key concepts target concepts that and we're doing a lot of research in this area at the moment, and we might get onto that stuff later uh, painful yarns uh the reason I mentioned that one first is not by any means because it's the best in my view. I just think it's a great place to start because okay. it's easy reading, hopefully it's fun it's got swear words in it. If you don't like swear words, you know, get someone to block them out before you read it. <laughs> uh had a great experience on a on a plane in those days before COVID when we were still able to fly. Uh, there was a fellow next sitting next to me who was laughing away at a book he was reading and I'd never met him before and it was painful yards. And that was that was a fun That's a fun situation to be able to say, yeah, I wrote that. <laughs> and then he held out the photo and yeah, there you go. You're a bit younger when you write that. Uh then the, the books that are, that have probably been a bigger impact uh, are the books that I've co-authored with David Butler. Okay. And David knows probably uh, as much, if not more, about pain uh, than anyone else I've dealt with. Um, and he's a he's a remarkable dude, actually. So uh, he and I wrote "Explain Pain" in two thousand and three, which set out as a book for the punter, but really has been a book for health professionals to work with their patients right uh, we then updated that in 2013 so that was the second edition uh, we've also written explain pain supercharged right. clinician's guide right so that goes in that's pretty heavy um but hopefully entertaining to read uh explain pain handbook Meter," which is a handbook to go with explain pain that is very much for the consumer so that's uh, we encourage people to write in that and ask questions and really go through a learning process. Right. Uh, and then another couple of uh, greater mode imagery handbook. I think that might be it, actually. But the, the explain pain suite of books uh, are probably the ones I'm most excited about.
0: The thing is, I, I, I won't rant too long here, but when you look at your stuff, which has been a big impact on me, and you look at the neuroscience, I mean, it's pretty clear that this is something that is not pain that is chronic, is really indicating actual structural damage and tissue injury, that there's a, it's a disease in the nervous system with lots of other environmental factors involved with it. So it's pretty clear. And the neuroscience is extraordinarily compelling. And then the physical therapy role, by the way, is picked up on these concepts. They've learned about chronic pain much more quickly than I think the medical profession has. And so why do you think there's so much resistance to in the medical profession, to learning and implementing these concepts? Because they're incredibly effective. You know, I've, what drives both of us, I think probably beyond reason, is that we see these people without any hope and they not only come alive, but they thrive at a level that's unbelievable. And so it's exciting and inspiring and rewarding. It's the right thing to do. Yet at the same time, Maybe my presentation isn't as clear as yours, but just an endless amount of resistance to the concepts that we're talking about. Why do you think the medical profession has been so resistant to it? And I'm sure it's resistant in the physical therapy world, but it's not nearly a resistance that I see in my medical world. Why do you think that's the case? <laughs>
1: it's a great question, David. And um, I think there would be hours of cab sav conversations to untangle all of it. Right. Um, Cabs have conversation being the conversations you should best have with a bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon <laughs> from South Australia. Actually,
0: okay. Yeah, um,
1: so, I, I think the answers would would show real similarities with a question about uh, why why are we not as a species taking better care of the climate. You know, I, think, I think that the answers to those two questions are probably equally complex and uh, really challenging from a, um, an operational perspective. But things that come to mind uh, include the, the biomedical model has served us really well as a species. And there are entire professions and some disciplines within those professions more so than others uh, that have had years and years of successful interactions using the biomedical model and the, the biomedical framework for making sense of everything.
0: Could you explain the term biomedical to the audience? Some people don't.
1: Yeah, that. so when I think of that, I think of uh, considering uh, st- structural pathological <clears throat> causes in isolation. And okay. Uh, causes for for ill health or disease in isolation. Got it. Um, you know, George Engel in the '60s uh, was was considered by some in in the medical field to be a heretic. I think for for claiming that the human uh, human ill illness and disease is a biopsychosocial problem, uh, and that was a radical advance and. Um, it is remarkable isn't it that it's still failing to hit right. the target in in a lot of areas right but i think also i mean as if i if i ask the question rather than from the perspective of a medical practitioner because i'm not one i think you could answer it really well from that perspective uh from a from a, a physiotherapy manual therapist perspective so uh i have been one of them <clears throat> and uh It is potentially very challenging to hear someone say what you're doing is no longer justifiable on the science that you initially based it on um and if i I, it's probably important for me to clarify what i mean by that and you know that is that that physiotherapy 25 years ago 30 years ago um almost came from a background of this works, this, this thing that we're doing works. And right. then we retrofitted theories and models and assessment and management paradigms. And then science started giving us data and we were able to lock that in to it all. Right. Almost like, <clears throat> almost like those, those kids' toys where you put different shaped things in different shaped holes. And we were able to do that uh, until the science started revealing things that did not fit with it. Right. And our explanations for why this was working were being refuted. And as a, as a someone trained, uh, my income relates to that skill set. For many people, uh, their identity relates to that skill set. Right. And then what they're hearing is people saying, this doesn't work for the reasons you thought it did. And I think that's a really intimidating possibility, right. uh, particularly if it comes with economic challenges. Uh, you know, well, I, think, th- I think it's really complex, obviously.
0: Right. I, I, think, I think that the thing I'm trying to say and highlight is that, um, and, and I think Lorimer really represents the state of the art of this. I mean, the neuroscience is right there that, and, and Tim, correct me for i wrong this, I mean, we actually know the answer to chronic pain. But a combination of resources and common on the nervous system. There's lots of different styles of doing it. But we actually know how to solve chronic pain based on clinical and neuroscience research. And We watch people go to pain free all the time. And so it's right there. But there's about five years of data that this being and maybe just the way knowledge works to get absorbed into the mainstream treatment plan. But we know the answer and we watch people continually being literally beat up by the medical system with an incorrect paradigm. So it's very challenging to to make that switch. So um, I'd like to, in the second podcast we we'll do here in a minute to really talk about some of the efforts you're making to actually change the paradigm, which are really, I think, heroic efforts. And I know in Australia, you have a, a chronic pain problem like we do in the United States here in a big way. And I just want to finish off the section with just a quick question. So you you, you practice physical therapy for a while, correct? hmm yep. I was how a, do you, how a do
1: you, card-carrying physio for seven or eight years.
0: Right, which I think is a tremendous background for musculoskeletal pain, of course, because you get to see things at a really clear level. But I'm curious how, I mean, Lormer's one of the top leading neuroscientists in the world. How did you transition from physical therapy into the role you're in right now? That's a fascinating transition.
1: Uh, so many so many questions in there. Uh, the I just want to respond to that idea of We know how to solve chronic pain. I'm less confident on that than you are. Um, And I I would certainly subscribe to the idea that we know how to prevent and treat it way better than it's usually prevented and treated. But there are a lot of things about it that I find difficult to get my head around, to be honest, and and really uh, stubborn. Like I see patients. So I see about three or four patients a week now have for the last sort of decade, and some of those I just find myself scratching my head because I think I don't understand why that's happening. So I certainly feel like um, there's this massive gap between the the science and the evidence for treating people in the best way we can and the way it's actually happening. So I certainly agree that there's this massive gap, but I, I'm probably uh I still think we've got a long way to go. And
0: well, let me clarify this back again. to you last. Well, let me yeah, let me clarify man. my statement. No, I agree with you. You're correct. So what we have found out, there's a group of patients that once they engage at who knows what how do you define the level, but with engagement and people taking control of their own care and moving forward, learning, exploring, letting go, moving forward, um, the results are pretty consistently positive. There's a very large group of patients, probably the majority that are so angry and shut down that we just can't penetrate that barrier. So I agree, uh, there's a huge challenge with a group of people that we don't know how to break into these, I, I call them pain circuits or phantom brain pain. And so no, I agree there's some, there's some huge gaps, but if a given, for a given person, let me say it this way, it's possible to solve chronic pain.
1: Yeah, look, I'd, I, absolutely, <clears throat> I absolutely agree. And if we're doing a lot of research at the moment, trying to understand what what is the what are the clinches inside someone's understanding of their body and the world and their place in it that if we switch them, they get a great outcome. Right. Yeah. Because I agree we've got data building up to say many of these people who themselves were convinced it was a hopeless cause, their clinical providers Men had also given up hope of any sort of recovery. Right. Uh, And we've got this data, you know, more than a trickle, not a flood coming in saying some of these people get total recovery. Right. And that's worth iterating. Some of these people get total recovery. So, Wow, some of them do. How do we expand that 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 group of people? And right. um, I'm with you on that target. Um, back to the question: uh, You are so generous in describing me as a leading neuroscientist. Uh, unfortunately, that's not even close to being true. Um, but I love that I've managed to give that impression to someone.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> okay. I I would describe myself certainly as a as a pain scientist with a fascination in in neuroscience that. The research that my group does is what we would call systems neuroscience. So it's, uh, it's certainly not looking at parts of the nervous system or how synapses work or any sort of stuff like that, but it's looking at how the human nervous system and, and I would now go more widely than that. The, the human behaves in certain situations. So um, thanks for your very large vote of confidence, but those sort of things that belong to other people, uh, those sort of descriptions, it's not not so much me. Uh, I I'm I'm very enthusiastic and passionate about communicating science, communicating neuroscience, to the people I think will most benefit from it. And I think that speaks to your your question about that transition or or maybe more the expansion is that a word, expansion of, mm-hmm. yeah. of my, my work expression as a physiotherapist to my work expression as a, a clinical neuroscience pain educator dude, right? So whatever I am, I don't really know how to describe that. But uh, that transition was, was very much born out of uh, a necessity, you know, almost like, uh, what's that phrase about, um, some, something is the is the parent of invention, necessity, or something. Necessity,
0: like that. Ne- yeah, necessity is a mother of invention, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, as as a clinician, uh, I found there was a large group of patients that were just just didn't get better, just didn't respond to what I was doing, and I found it very difficult. So so simultaneous with that was my own fascination and desire to understand the human my uh, desire to give as much understanding as i could to the person in front of me as a physiotherapist and i identified that man some of these people seem to be improving just when they understand stuff Uh, and that really drove my own still around passion to understand and to communicate that understanding uh, with kindness and compassion and respect and uh, humility, I guess, that I right. don't understand what it's like to be this person in front of me right. and all I can offer is the, the best I can do with my skill set and resources.
0: That's fantastic. And then
1: that really fed its own journey towards doing what I, what I do um and it probably is the constant theme so the transition was uh really one that happened just because of my interpretation of events and my value system and what i think i'm good at
0: that's fantastic well Arma, thank you very much um i'd like to actually um, find out more in the next session about what your efforts actually are i think you and i both have a huge passion to educate the world of what's possible But anyway, thank you very, very much. uh, This is wonderful. uh, Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. It's great. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Laura Marmosley, for joining us today and sharing his insights into the clinical neuroscience of pain. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to come back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com.